Worldwide, cardiovascular disease affects the lives of hundreds of millions. Dedicated cardio nerds everywhere are working hard to fight this global epidemic. These are their stories. Hey, cardio nerds. Kareem here. Thanks for tuning in. We had a lot of fun recording episode three with Fatima, our hypertrophic cardiomyopathy case discussion. Next, we have a few Pulse Check with the Expert episodes coming your way for this incredibly important topic. But if you haven't listened to episode three, please make sure to check that out so that we can set the stage. For this episode, Dan interviews Dr. Jose Madrazo. This is a golden episode where we really get practical. Cardio nerds, welcome back to the show. This is a pulse check. Ask the experts, and we are discussing expertise in hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. I'm with Dr. Jose Madrazo, a top-notch cardiologist in the Johns Hopkins Hospital and an assistant professor of medicine at the Johns Hopkins School of Medicine. He received his medical degree from the University of Puerto Rico School of Medicine and completed his residency at the Baylor College of Medicine in Houston, Texas. He completed his cardiology and advanced echo fellowship at the Washington University and St. Louis School of Medicine before joining Hopkins faculty. Dr. Majazzo is a personal mentor of mine. He is a master clinician and also just a master educator. I've been working with him since my intern year in the CCU, and he has opened my eyes to the world of echo, bringing physiology and depth to the pictures I have learned to interpret. He is a rock star in jiu-jitsu, and he is somebody who just balances work and life in an unbelievable way. So with that, Jose, welcome to the show. Hi, Dan. Thank you for having me. Uh, you asked me to talk about the uh, basic uh, initial evaluation of patients uh, referred for hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. Um, I think this is a uh, unique and uh, very fascinating disease. It's got multiple facets. Um, and I tend to break down the evaluation into several components. I think the first thing to think about is uh, whether the patient has the disease itself. And this can pose several challenges because, by definition, it's a disease based on its phenotype. Uh, there is no real good, uh, consistent way to confirm the diagnosis. Um, sometimes genetic testing is helpful, but that can be uh, hit or miss as well. So, uh, by definition, this is a condition that's characterized by hypertrophy in the heart that's disproportionate to uh, stimulus. Uh, meaning that there will be left ventricular hypertrophy uh, in the absence of other things such as hypertension, uh, aortic valve stenosis, pressure overload. Um, this hypertrophy can uh, be present in uh, several different patterns. Uh, the most common one or the most classic one we think about is uh, proximal septal hypertrophy, uh, which can lead to systolic anterior motion of the mitral valve and LVOT obstruction. Uh, but this is not the only pattern that we see. We frequently see patients that have uh, septal hypertrophy without obstruction or hypertrophy in other areas of the heart, such as apical hypertrophy. Within the initial diagnosis and establishing the diagnosis, uh, I'm always mindful uh, to think about other conditions that can also cause hypertrophy and that are not hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. Uh, these are so-called phenocopies of hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. So my initial evaluation uh, will be an echocardiogram, and we're going to look for typical features of uh, hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. So in the right patient without any stimulus to hypertrophy, if you have significant uh, 
septal hypertrophy, uh, that's asymmetric to the posterior wall, meaning a septal to posterior wall ratio of greater than 1.3, uh, that starts to point you in the right direction. Again, this does not have to be limited to that. Sometimes we have patients with uh, apical predominant hypertrophy, which is important to note as well, or diffuse hypertrophy. When the hypertrophy uh, becomes more severe and more diffuse uh, and concentric and equal throughout the ventricle, that starts to make me think about other diagnoses such as infiltrative processes like uh, amyloid heart disease, glycogen storage disease, and others. This I also put in combination with other findings. So for example, I tend to look at the EKG. So if the echo is hypertrophy, then the EKG has disproportionately low volts compared to the echo. You're going to think about infiltrative disease like amyloid heart disease. Um, there's other findings on the EKG, like conduction abnormalities or pre-excitation syndromes that will also point you to some more specific uh, diseases. And besides the electrocardiogram, I also keep uh, my eye out for other clinical features that may suggest a more systemic process or other syndromes. And these include things uh, like paresthesias, carpal tunnel syndrome, uh, gait or muscle weakness, other things that are systemic that are not just uh, localized to the heart. Within this initial diagnosis, I think it's also important to note that hypertrophic cardiomyopathy is a common condition and that some patients will have concomitant common diseases. So it's not uncommon to have a hypertensive patient referred for evaluation of hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. This can pose a unique challenge because hypertension can lead to left ventricular hypertrophy. Uh, so now you start getting into uh, areas that may be a little bit confounding. And these patients, uh, depending on their age and the degree of LVH, as well as to how well controlled and how long-standing the hypertension, all these things have to be kind of put into context. I typically tend to use a septal to posterior wall ratio of 1.5 instead of 1.3 in these patients uh, to allow for a little bit of a higher specificity. Within that initial uh, evaluation, if there are concerns that the image quality on the echocardiogram are not so good, or there's maybe a concern that you're dealing with one of these other conditions that's not hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, we have a very low threshold to refer them for a cardiac MRI to get further uh, morphologic information, uh, to look things that, to look for things that may have been missed, like apical aneurysms, and also to look for patterns of late gadolinium enhancement that may help clarify the diagnosis. Another special uh, population that um, we should talk about too is the very discrete focal upper septal hypertrophy or a sigmoid septum. There are patients with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy that have uh, a lot of the hypertrophy localized to the upper septum, uh, but there's also elderly patients that have hypertension that have discrete focal upper septal hypertrophy. And I think the distinction there uh, is easy when you have a young patient that shouldn't have that proximal septal bulge and um, has some concerning symptoms or has a family history. Or it's also easy when you have a, an elderly patient with a history of hypertension that has some uh, discrete upper septal thickening and no other features associated with it. It becomes a little trickier when your patients are kind of in the middle of the age range 
uh, or when that upper septal thickening is mild in a young patient or really severe in an old patient. So again, you have to put things into context of their age, what the stimulus for that being there, and what the implications for it and the context that you find it in. Um, so again, in an older patient uh, with hypertension, I tend to use a ratio of 1.5 to 1 of that upper septum to posterior wall. Um, and I also look for how severe the upper septal thickening is. So if it's 1.5 centimeters, that has a different implication in my mind than if it's 2 centimeters. Um, at the end of the day, um, in cases that are equivocal and the diagnosis are difficult to parse out, they don't have a family history or their family history is unknown, and uh, you know I may refer them for genetic testing and that comes back, uh, negative, so I'm still kind of in that gray zone, I may assume the worst and say, okay, so let's say you do have hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. How would I treat you differently? And what implications does this have um, for you? So I may recommend that they screen their family members, which may help us establish the diagnosis in that patient. Um, I may recommend um, that they get a Holter monitor and just stratify what the risk for sudden cardiac death would be um, in terms of assuming they have hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. And generally speaking, these patients, if they don't have obstruction, uh, they tend to have a more benign uh, prognosis and course. Th there is one more uh, phenocopy of hypertrophic cardiomyopathy that I would like to mention, and these are patients that have a subvalvular fixed aortic stenosis, typically a subvalvular membrane. These patients uh, will have high gradients on the echocardiogram. There is a fixed structure. It's a membrane that obstructs the LV outflow tract. So this leads to pressure overload of the left ventricle and therefore leads to hypertrophic remodeling of the left ventricle. So uh, by all means, uh, this condition looks like a hypertrophied left ventricle with a high gradient at the LV outflow tract. Uh, so this can be easily confused with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. Um, the membrane can be very thin and very difficult to visualize on the echocardiogram, so you have to have a high index of suspicion and be watching for this. Clinically, uh, these patients have fixed obstruction, so their murmur uh, should be more like an aortic stenosis murmur than a labile uh, dynamic murmur like your hypertrophs have. On echocardiogram, their signal should be an early peaking signal because the obstruction is, is present there from early systole, as opposed to hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, which has more obstruction in late systole when the systolic anterior motion of the mitral valve is most pronounced, um, the so-called dagger-shaped signal. And the other thing that's a clue in these patients is that the subvalvular obstruction frequently results in a high-velocity jet hitting the aortic valve and therefore damaging the valve and resulting in some aortic regurgitation. So the presence of aortic regurgitation should also be uh, a tip-off that maybe you're dealing with a subvalvular obstruction. Uh, this is important because the treatment for this condition is surgical uh, removal of that membrane uh, if the obstruction is uh, severe enough. Oh, very interesting. So it's, it, it may come to you as a HCM patient, but it's actually not quite HCM. It's just a remodeling due to that membrane. Correct. We get some of these patients referred uh, because they've been diagnosed with HCM. They've tried pharmacotherapy and the gradient isn't going away. 
and they're still symptomatic. And uh, lo and behold, they have a surgical problem, which is a subvalvular membrane. No, fascinating. That's really cool. I think actually back before HCM was recognized, the mm-hmm. valvular membrane was more recognized. They would open up to look for these valvular membranes because they had these high cath gradients uh, seen with uh, cardiac catheterization, and then they didn't see any of the uh, they didn't see the membranes, but they see this big hunk of septum. Correct. That's why the the prior nomenclature for this condition was uh, ASHS, idiopathic subaortic hypertrophic stenosis. Idiopathic subaortic hypertrophic stenosis. Yeah. Interesting. Interesting. Right. Specifically, getting into the hypertrophic cardiomyopathy world. So now let's assume we have a patient that we're convinced it's hypertrophic cardiomyopathy and not some other disease. Um, then I start to think about the physiology that's specific for this patient. Uh, these patients uh, come, uh, when it comes to obstruction, can come in sort of three flavors. Some patients will have hypertrophy that either doesn't lead to systolic anterior motion or obstruction or is in an area like the apex that is not prone to cause obstruction. Um, So there will be non-obstructive hypertrophic cardiomyopathy patients, uh, which, uh, again, we're not too worried about the obstruction. They can have symptoms of diastolic dysfunction uh, or, uh, over time, develop systolic dysfunction in a small uh, portion of them. Uh, There's patients that will have very classic and significant obstruction in the LVOT, so you'll see systolic anterior motion of the mitral valve. Um, That will lead to a gradient below the aortic valve. Um, And these patients, uh, depending on their symptom status, we're going to aim to relieve relieve this obstruction with uh, primarily medications like beta blockers and non-dihydropyridine calcium blockers, uh, potentially in combination with things like disopyramide. If medical therapy uh, is not sufficient, and these are patients that we think about septal modification procedures like uh, surgery or alcohol septal ablation. And then the third flavor is a subgroup of patients that don't have obstruction at baseline, but they have symptoms. Uh, and then we can provoke gradients with certain maneuvers, which we can do at the bedside, uh, and we can hear the murmur be provoked, or uh, in the echocardiogram, look for gradients uh, typically provoked by things like Valsalva, and in certain cases, uh, certain selected cases, uh, use of amyl nitrate, for example. So when we're talking about LVOT obstruction, um, the most widely accepted definition is an LVOT gradient of greater than 30 uh, millimeters of mercury at rest, or uh, depending on uh, which literature you use, a gradient of either greater than 30 or 50 uh, with provocation. Um, So meaning uh, Valsalva, amyl amyl nitrate uh, exercise. How often do you use disapyramid? Rare. I don't use it very commonly, and uh, when I do use it, a uh, fair number of patients end up having cholinergic side effects, which can be uh, a little bit of a problem. It does also, for us here, entail an admission for observ- observed initiation of the medicine. Aside from the symptoms um, and the presence of obstruction, um, we also... Uh, ask the patients about their exercise tolerance and capacity, and if they have impairment in that, uh, there may be a role for exercise testing to see if we see a provoked gradient that wasn't present at baseline that may be elicited with exercise, um, as well as to establish their blood pressure response to exercise, which will uh, 
sometimes play into the decision as to whether they need a prophylactic ICD and the risk of sudden cardiac death from arrhythmias. So that gets me kind of to the next component of my evaluation. Uh, so we've established uh, that the diagnosis is hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. Um, we uh, have established the patient's physiology and what their symptomatology is and treated that accordingly uh, with pharmacologic therapy and in selected cases with septal modification procedures. We're also simultaneously and constantly assessing the patient's risk for sudden cardiac death. Uh, we do this uh, by using the traditional ACC criteria as well as the uh, European guidelines calculator. And we're going to be looking for things like how thick the ventricle is. Um, in very thick ventricles, uh, greater than three centimeters, the risk is significantly higher, as well as uh, traditional risk factors like strong family history, family history of sudden cardiac death, uh, aborted sudden cardiac death in the patient, um, unexplained syncope, those being the major uh, major hard risk factors. That in combination with other things like looking for non-sustained ventricular arrhythmias and halter monitoring, which we do on patients routinely, hypotensive response to exercise. If we have one of these major criteria, we will recommend a prophylactic ICD. In the absence of these criteria, we also uh, use the ESC risk calculator, which you can get online, and you plug in some patient characteristics and some findings on the echocardiogram, and it gives you a risk profile for the patient in the low, intermediate, or high risk category, which we also use. And then finally, uh, in cases where things are borderline, uh, we've been leaning towards more and more use of cardiac MRI and quantification of how much scar there is um, on the MRI depending on the LGE pattern. The more LGE you have, your risk will go up as well. Uh, we make this, these decisions uh, as a multidisciplinary team in combination uh, with the electrophysiology team and with the uh, patient involved and, and educated along the way. There are also, I would like to add, certain specific gene mutations which may pose a higher risk for arrhythmias. Those are rare uh, that we uh, deal with those. Next component of my evaluation is I tell all my patients uh, that this disease is not one that they carry by themselves, that it's a disease that's uh, potentially been inherited and that can be passed on to their offspring. So the recommendation is for all the first-degree relatives to get screened for this condition. Um, meaning parents, siblings, and children. We recommend that all adult patients get a screening echocardiogram, and if that's normal, then they should have that repeated every three to five years to make sure they don't develop a phenotype. In patients that have a, an established gene mutation, which happens in about half the time that we screen our patients, we can use this genetic mutation to screen the family members. I think it's really important to screen the family members because many patients are out there with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy and they're asymptomatic, but they do still carry a risk of sudden cardiac death. And it's important to stratify that risk to see if uh, we can prevent bad things from happening in these patients. The final uh, component that I routinely uh, address with my patients is activity and exercise recommendations. This can be a particularly challenging topic, uh, particularly in the younger population, 
um, because we want to allow our patients to do as much as is safely safe for them to do. We want them to live uh, happy whole lives and have healthy lifestyles from a cardiovascular perspective, but we also want them to be safe. Uh, so there are established guidelines by the ACC that say which sports are more or less favorable. I'll refer you to the guidelines if you want to look at specifics. Uh, but in general, uh, no competitive uh, sports, uh, no isometric sports with prolonged periods of uh, Valsalva maneuver, and no sports that are in a dangerous environment where if you are to get lightheaded or pass out, you could suffer uh, injuries from, from the environment. You know, one example being scuba diving. Um, mm. This also uh, poses a risk in my older patients, which may not have a severe phenotype, and they're not looking to do competitive sports, but I do want them to stay active and not develop metabolic diseases from inactivity. Um, again, the current guidelines are for mild to moderate activity on a routine basis, with avoidance of some of these activities that I just mentioned. This also kind of segues into a special group of patients which are athletes. And so occasionally we get referrals for really athletic patients that can have uh, some abnormalities on the EKG and they can have some findings on the echocardiogram which can overlap with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. Um, these are particularly challenging, um, I think, because uh, these patients may be, for example, trying to be professional athletes and have a lot of uh, skin in the game and potentially have very uh, significant financial implications for them as well. In general, with athletes, you have to think about the type of activity they're doing and really how intense uh, the activity is for that individual. A lot of patients will come in saying they're athletes, but when you talk to them, you know, they exercise three times a week for one hour each session. That shouldn't give you uh, the, such extreme remodeling that would explain uh, the findings on an echocardiogram. So for your really active, competitive patients that are engaged in heavy activity, the remodeling uh, that you expect is dependent on the type of activity. So more isometric exercises like weightlifting will tend to give you more hypertrophy of the muscle, whereas more endurance exercises will give you more chamber uh, dilatation with less hypertrophy of the muscle. So that's the first clue. Why, why do you think that is? It's a good question. Isometric exercise tends to raise arterial blood pressure while you're uh, performing the movement. So it's more of a pressure overload on the ventricle, whereas more sustained endurance exercises not imposing that um, higher uh, higher pressures that you're seeing in the aorta, uh, but they are leading to a need for an increased stroke volume and cardiac output that's sustained for a longer time. You recruit blood from your veins and kind of in, intra, make it a more available intravascularly. Uh, so they tend to dilate to be able to have a higher reserve in their stroke volume when they're performing activity. Oh, that's really neat. I know. I totally never thought about it like that. And there are some some activities, for example, like rowing, where, where you have a combination of both uh, isometric and endurance. So those patients will have uh, significantly enlarged chambers with somewhat thick ventricles. So you can have combination of the two activities. Uh, in general, these patients will have 
mild abnormalities, so mildly dilated ventricles or mildly increased wall thickness. So that's your first clue. If you're dealing with severely dilated ventricles, severely thickened walls, that's unlikely to be an athlete's heart. And they will tend to have normal or supranormal physiology, meaning they can exercise large amounts. They'll have very normal tissue Doppler patterns or supranormal tissue Doppler patterns. Uh, supranormal diastolic function patterns um, and normal uh, strain patterns if you get into uh, strain analysis, whereas uh, deceased uh, myocardium will tend to have somewhat reduced strain. So yeah, thank you for having me. This is uh, really a fascinating disease with many, many different facets to it. Uh, the patient population is very varied. It's a very common uh, condition and uh, you know patients can have uh, mild forms and uh, live uh, full lives without problems. Other patients will have a lot of obstruction and they get significantly better with alleviating this obstruction with either pharmacologic or uh, you know septal modification therapies. And some uh, patients, a smaller minority of them, but a significant uh, portion of them that we have to keep an eye out for will progress to uh, severe systolic dysfunction and need advanced heart failure therapies like cardiac transplants. It's also an important uh, disease because it's inheritable, so we can pick it up uh, from a young age with the right screening and prevent a lot of complications with the right care. All right, Jose, thanks for being here with us. Really appreciate it. We learned a lot of pearls. Uh, one last question for you. So we have a segment on our show called What's Making My Heart Flutter? It's kind of like what makes you get a lot of uh, satisfaction at work? Is there anything that you can tell us? Working with you, Dan. Oh, stop it. Yeah. <laughs> I, I love the uh, educational aspect of my job. I love coming into work and working with the fellows. And uh, frequently they're teaching me things. But for me to be able to pass on my knowledge and yeah, see how you guys are learning and developing is really what uh, gets me going. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Awesome. All right, everyone. That is the show. that brings us to the end of our show so it's time to make like an s2 and split you can follow us on twitter at cardio nerds don't forget to check out the amazing illustration that kareem prepared for y'all at www.cardionerds.com and please share what made your heart flutter this week send us a clip to cardionerds at gmail.com if you enjoyed the show be a nerd and spread the word and now a flutter moment hi everyone this is uh, Saman. I just want to say what makes my heart flutter is being with my wife and son in Tucson, Arizona. And I have my son here with me. What makes my heart flutter is true love for my mama and baba. Boop, boop.